When scuba divers achieve what is called neutral buoyancy, they can glide over the ocean floor without bobbing up or down, hovering as if gravity no longer exists. While we often think of ballast as something that stabilizes a ship, it's ballast weights that allow divers to control their buoyancy underwater and to establish good positioning as well. Let's go start getting suited up. I've got extra weights here too. But humans aren't the only ones using ballast to control buoyancy. In this third episode of the Ballast Podcast, we follow local adventure seekers on a deep dive to find out how ballast is being used by bottom-dwelling octopuses, deep-diving whales, and how it was even used by stone-swallowing prehistoric marine reptiles. It's all coming up in three, two, one. you to name the greatest animal migration on Earth, what would you say? Wildebeest traversing African plains? Humpback whales crossing oceans? Or perhaps our avian friends flitting from one continent to another? If you guessed any of these, sorry, you'd be wrong. Yeah, my name is Stephanie Bush and I work at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of Natural History. Most fish have swim bladders and they can modify the amount of air that is in the swim bladder as they move in, up and down in the water column. It's the largest animal migration on the planet. Fish and invertebrates migrating up and down. Bet that wasn't what you pictured. And they adjust their buoyancy by having the perfect ratio of mass to gas, just like scuba divers. But swim bladders aren't the only way to get around this buoyancy challenge. So there's been multiple evolutionary sort of answers, if you will, to the question of how can you maintain buoyancy in the water column. Our pal Stephanie at the Smithsonian isn't just interested in fish. Her expertise lies with invertebrates, and more specifically with cephalopods, you know, squids and octopuses, the real brains of the underwater kingdom. Cephalopods, for example, like the chambered nautilus. So they have... This external shell that has different chambers, and they actually have a little tube that connects the chambers, and that's called a siphuncle, and they actually are able to um, pump gas and liquid into the different chambers using that siphuncle, and that's what allows them to maintain neutral buoyancy as they move up and down in the water column. This idea of nautiluses using trapped air chambers for buoyancy really piqued my interest. It's like they have an organic ballast tank that allows them to move up and down and to stay upright. Chambered nautiluses are known to migrate half a kilometer up from the depths every night in search of crabs and fishes to eat, just as their relatives have done for more than 500 million years. After speaking with Stephanie, another animal has caught my fancy, Argonauts. That is Paul Smith's theme music for the 1954 picture 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. 
Argonauts fascinated fiction writer Jules Verne, and he wrote them into his groundbreaking sci-fi novel in 1870. The first thing you need to know is that female Argonauts, yeah, sorry men, only the females, secrete a thin, white, brittle shell which earned them the name Paper Nautilus. For millennia, naturalists couldn't determine the role of the female Argonaut shell. Seriously, even Aristotle, Aristotle was stumped by these creatures. In 2010, two scientists from Australia, Julian Finn and Mark Norman, made a startling discovery. And yes, it all comes back to this idea of a ballast tank. So they're actually gulping air or taking air from the surface into their shell? Yeah. And then taking, wow. And then how are they, how do they seal it? Like, how do they get it in and how does it stay in? When they go to the surface, they kind of turn the shell so that air is introduced into the shell and then they turn it so that it doesn't you know bubble back out as they are diving down below the surface of the water um and then they, i think they just hold their body um kind of smush their body <laughs> in into the shell as much as they can to to keep that gas they've got to hold it in because as the pressure increases as they go deeper the gas would try to expand, you know, escape from the shell. I, I love that scientific yeah. term, smush their body. <laughs> yeah, <there>. yeah. <laughs> I find it astonishing to imagine these female Argonauts nestled with their arms tucked inside their beautiful translucent homes, manipulating air they obtain from the water surface to move themselves up and down in the ocean. Neutral buoyancy is one of the ways that they were able to branch off from the, you know, bivalves, gastropods, other mollusks, um, and sort of, quote unquote, invade the water column. And then, of course, that opened up a huge number of habitats for them. Pretty amazing, right? Observing how animals use air to ballast themselves in the ocean is fascinating. And it turns out to have been the catalyst for a really good idea. A few years back, Alexander Grant and his fellow students at McGill University created an award-winning design for an air ballast cargo ship. They wanted to control the stability and buoyancy of cargo ships without using ballast water. Most people think of ballast as adding weight to hold a boat steady in the water when its cargo is removed. Alex and his teammates turned that thinking on its head. You could, you could counteract that thinking with with an upward force like air. To control buoyancy, they realized they could pump air into a ship when it was full, instead of pumping water into it when it was empty. Rather than looking to shipbuilders for solutions, they looked to nature. That remarkable sound is a male plane fin midshipman fish contracting the drumming muscles of his swim bladder. The males construct nests and then grunt or hum to attract females to lay eggs in them. We pretty quickly converged on um, the swim bladders of fish. I think one of the lessons in the biomimicry playbook is if you see a motif repeat itself in nature over and over and over, that is a good design strategy. Um, And the swim bladders is an excellent example of that. You know, that's found in thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of species of creatures on this planet. So how did they then apply that design to a cargo ship? On the exterior of the side of the ship, we would have inflatable, uh, like lungs. I think we, I think we called them lungs. So when the ship would get loaded, uh, we would 
counteract the weight of the of the of the cargo by uh, pumping air underwater into these lungs uh, that would provide buoyancy for the ship. And speaking of lungs, remember those divers we heard at the beginning of this episode? Well, they're free divers, experts at holding their breath. The current record for a free diver holding their breath is 11 minutes, 35 seconds. Yes, you heard that right. According to the International Association for the Development of Apnea, which records all free diving world records, the current non-oxygenated record, which means the diver couldn't hyperventilate with oxygen before holding their breath underwater without moving, is 11 minutes, 35 seconds, set by Stefan Mifsud in 2009. To help me understand the forces at play as we humans go deeper and deeper underwater, I called local freediver Chris Adair. Chris runs Bottom Dwellers Freediving, which is a freediving instruction and charter service company based out of Victoria, BC. The fact that it's winter now doesn't seem to have deterred him or his fellow divers from taking the plunge when I meet them here in Brentwood Bay on Vancouver Island. My producer, Kat Pine, decided to tag along. And best of all, she's brought a kayak so we won't actually have to get wet. It's a chilly day. What did she say? It was like 8.7 degrees. I think the water's like eight degrees today. It's it's freezing. Look, I have to wear these. What are these funny middens called? They're uh, pogies. 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 <laughs> Isn't that a type of food? Let's not know. let's not drop the recorder in the ocean because I don't want to go after exactly, it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. How much how much money would it take to get you in the water with those guys? This I morning? would. Okay, I'm cheap, so I'd go in the water for a little money, but I would never go free diving for even a lot of money. Freedivers don't use scuba tanks. Their lungs are their air tanks. All right, so diaphragm, chest, shoulders, neck. And then first level exhale, relax passive side. You see, humans who want to explore underwater have the opposite problem of Alex's air ballast cargo ship. In the case of the ship, they needed to add air to increase the buoyancy of that fully loaded ship. Freedivers, on the other hand, have to use weights to counteract the air in their lungs and the buoyancy of their wetsuits so that they can be as close as possible to being neutrally buoyant at specific depths. Neutral buoyancy is that seemingly weightless feeling between floating and sinking. So where do freedivers place the weights on their bodies to get as little drag as possible as they descend head first with their feet trailing behind? When you actually start to freedive a lot, you start noticing that carrying all the weight on your hips, you're not you know, balanced. Whereas shifting some of the weight to your neck, you start trimming yourself out. And then competitive freedivers will uh, eventually start wearing all their weights to sort of drop like a lawn dart. So all their weight on their neck? Yeah, eventually. And when boats are adjusting their ballast, you know, they're moving weight on and off. In this right. case, you're holding that weight the whole time. Correct. Is it your, how, how are you compensating? <clears throat> so, adjusting. yeah, so we adjust and compensate depending on the depth we're diving. And for these students that I have, uh, we do a maximum of a uh, 20 meter uh, depth in this course, so 66 feet. Chris takes time to check and double check that each student is properly weighted. Okay, so we got to put a little bit of weight on you. Two? Yeah, I'd say we'll put a two-pounder on you. 
So what we're doing there is we're adjusting his weight so that it's not too positive, but he's still safe and buoyant at the surface, okay? In advanced free diving, once a diver reaches a certain depth, the air in their lungs is so compressed that they are no longer neutrally buoyant and they become negatively buoyant. It's called the sink phase or free fall and it allows the divers to reach their target depth without expending energy. They don't need to keep kicking to go down. They just sink. So I just started holding my breath when they held their breath and I've stopped and they're still under. I'm trying to imagine just the pressure I mean, they must be feeling on their chests as they're going down to 10 meters. And pretty soon when they go a little bit deeper, there's actually enough pressure to squeeze their spleen. And that squeezing of the spleen pushes more oxygen into their blood. So when they were talking about knowing their biology, knowing they can depend on those kind of physiological changes, um, that's part of what allows them to stay calm when that gasping is in there. That's wild. And they, they took so much care at the beginning to determine the exact amount of weight that they needed and where they needed to put it. Like they took some real time to do that and to make sure that as they're going down, it's as stable and controlled as possible. And that's all ballast, that's all science. Still not sure about those neck weights though. <laughs> Creepy, but effective, clearly effective. As Kat and I sat in our kayak waiting to see how the divers would fare, I couldn't help but think of sperm whales who routinely dive a kilometer deep and elephant seals who can hold their breath for two hours. So how do they do it? The ribs of whales and seals bend easily under pressure without breaking. And right before they dive, marine mammals exhale, expelling almost all of the air in their lungs, which reduces their buoyancy and makes it easier to dive. Marine mammals also make the most of what little oxygen they have left. They stop breathing and dramatically drop their heart rates. They also shunt their blood toward their heart, brain, and muscles, temporarily shutting down organs such as their kidneys and liver while they're hunting. Like human divers, they also conserve energy. Their streamlined body shape helps them to glide downwards without moving a muscle, extending their oxygen stores for as long as possible. In other words, extreme free diving. But what about animals that need a little help reaching their desired depth or finding balance in the water? Before we end this podcast, we want to float one more idea past you. Brace yourself. We're taking ballast right back to where we started. Rocks. It turns out that penguins, sea lions, crocodiles, and even giant prehistoric marine reptiles swallow rocks. Scientists call these stones gastroliths. And there's a lot of talk about whether these animals actively swallow stones to ballast themselves in the water. I'm Donald Henderson, and I'm with the Royal Tyrrell Museum of Paleontology in Drumheller, Alberta. So gastroliths, the name means literally stomach stone, and a variety of animals have been found with stones in their stomachs. And some of the stones, certainly for prehistoric animals, um, some of the stones aren't found where the animals were living or died. The animals went out of their way to go and get them. So the other major group that's found with stomach stones are the plesiosaurs. 
So these are the marine reptiles. Their bodies are completely transformed for life in water. They never came on land. And they're almost always found with stomach stones. We don't know whether these massive, long-necked, swimming prehistoric reptiles use the stones for deep dives or to find balance at the surface, like how a ship uses ballast. I actually, I actually developed some software and worked out the math to see what effect a volume of stones would have on the ability of a plesiosaur to sink, and it doesn't. It's absolutely negligible. The thing I did notice was that the super long-necked ones, if they were floating at the surface and bobbing around, they stabilized sooner with a small amount of stones than without stones. Don isn't the only scientist using math to try to sort out whether animals swallow stones for ballast. The Archimedes force is given by the formula F buoyant equals G times rho C, the sum of the volumes. Now rho C is the density of seawater around Crozet Island at a temperature of roughly six degrees Celsius. That fancy math is the work of David Boyne and his colleagues as they attempted to calculate the mass of stones required for a 12 kilogram king penguin to reach neutral buoyancy or what they call stone mass ballasting, at various depths. And what did they conclude? In conclusion, gastroliths might have multiple functions in king penguins, for example, aiding in digestion, organ preservation, as well as buoyancy control during diving. Yep, you got it. They don't know. Across the natural world, animals have adapted in wondrous and mysterious ways to their environments. And we may never know for sure whether these stone-swallowing animals are ballasting themselves or not. And just like that, once again, my mind is blown by the infinite resourcefulness of animals and the vast uses of ballast. I'm going to take a cue from our free divers, and with a big breath, thank all of our support team today. Stephanie Bush from the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History, Donald Henderson with the Royal Terrell Museum of Paleontology, Alexander Grant and his fellow designers on Team Dedal when they were students at McGill University, and our freedivers, led by Chris Adair of Bottom Dwellers here in Victoria. This episode of Ballast was produced by Katrina Pine and me, Ellen Kelsey. Our original theme music is by Tobin Stokes. The team also includes Jude Isabella, Adrian Mason, Mark Garrison, David Garrison, and our fact-checker, Megan Osmond-Jones. Check out hakaimagazine.com slash ballastpodcast for more on each episode. We are an endeavor of Hakai Magazine and are produced next to the sea in historic downtown Victoria, British Columbia. Tune into the next episode of the Ballast Podcast, where we go back in time to look at how the very concept of ballast has been used in some pretty dark and twisted ways. Oh, and one last thing. If you're listening to this podcast and think it's a good idea to throw on some weights, jump in the ocean, and try free diving on your own, please think again. Don't try this at home. On that note, I'll ask my friend, the free diver Chris Adair, and his crew to take us out.